I'm Kara Infante, and this is Bookish Flights. In each episode, I chat with one bookish guest as we take some time to sample and savor the pairing recommendations from their bookish flight. We hope to give you suggestions to cultivate your TBR list and nurture your leisure time through books. In today's episode, I am chatting with Roland Marullo. Roland is an award-winning author of 24 books, including 17 works of fiction. Breakfast with Buddha, a nominee for the International Impact Dublin Literary Award, is now in its 20th printing. The Talk Funny Girl, a 2022 Alex Award winner, and named a must-read by the Massachusetts Library Association and the Massachusetts Center for the Book. Vatican Waltz, named one of the best books of 2013 by Publishers Weekly. Lunch with Buddha, selected as the best books of 2013 by Kirkus Reviews. American Savior, a 2008 Massachusetts Center for the Book Honor Award winner. Revere Beach Boulevard, named one of the top 100 essential books of New England by the Boston Globe. He has written a little love story chosen as one of the 10 wonderful romance novels by Good Housekeeping, and also Revere Beach Elegy was a winner of the Massachusetts Book Award for Nonfiction. He is a former writer-in-residence at North Shore Community College and Miami-Dade Colleges, and a professor of creative writing at Bennington, Amherst, and Leslie Colleges. Roland is about to release the fourth and final installment of the Buddha series books, called Dessert with Buddha on May 18th. I am so honored to have him on the show today. Welcome to the show, Roland. Thank you for having me, Kara. It's nice to be here. Yes, I'm so glad. Well, let's start with your impressive resume. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Maybe at some subconscious level, yes. Okay. But realistically, no. I grew up in a a kind of rough working class um, city right at the end of the Boston subway line and very working class neighborhood. Our street was, uh, the houses were close together. We had plumbers and factory workers and nurses and shoemakers and that kind of thing. And so there was no model for being a writer. There was, I couldn't even really I couldn't see anybody, never saw anybody who was a writer, even a newspaper writer or a magazine writer. So it really was not a, I loved books from an early age, but um, there may have been some sleeping dream there of being a writer, but it was totally unrealistic. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you start out doing then? Oh, that's a long answer. I've done (laughs) done a lot of stuff. Um, I took, I was given... Russian language in ninth grade by a, by really a fluke. And I kept taking it, even though I was a terrible Russian student, <laughs> bottom of the class all the way through high school and into college. And even in grad school, I was not good with the language, but I loved the literature. Okay. So after I got my master's, I asked my advisor what I could do with that and he said there's a program run by the united states government um u.s information agency that sends exhibitions on american life to the soviet union why don't you apply to that so i did wow and it took me a year but i got it was a fantastic program i got the job traveled all across that enormous country uh, with a group of russian-speaking americans for seven or eight months. And then I came home. I lived alone in Vermont and made sandwiches at a ski area. I went into the Peace Corps for a while. I came back from the Peace Corps and drove a taxi. I loaded trucks. I started doing carpentry shortly after we were married um, at a very basic level. Wow. And then was a full-time carpenter for about seven years and um, went back to the Soviet Union twice on the same program for longer periods. Okay. And then eventually published a book and got it, did a little college teaching. I can tell from the books of yours that I've read, though, you really do a great job of describing the human spirit mm-hmm. and who people are. And I think you do a great job of kind of letting us understand your characters. And I imagine that all of those jobs you had along the way that were very varied, that probably helped you have that ability to put that into words or into writing. 
It really did. I think I was very lucky that I didn't publish a book early on. And I started writing seriously when I was 25. Okay. Not publish uh, until I was 37. Wow. Uh, And I think I was very fortunate, even though those were some lean and difficult years at times. um, Because of what you just said, I did have all these experiences with all different kinds of people in all different kinds of places. And that's a fantastic education for a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you have a book about uh, the Soviet Union. Was that the first book you had published? No, that was the second book. Uh, okay. A Russian Requiem. The first book was Leaving Los Apis. It was set in, in the, the Micronesian Islands, where I was in the Peace Corps, and then in Revere, uh, Massachusetts, where I grew up. Okay. Although I didn't call it Revere at that so do you get a lot of inspiration from the places that you've traveled for your books? Absolutely. That place is probably the most important uh, aspect of my books. Okay. Do you go after you have the idea for the book or does the idea come from the place? Uh, the latter. The idea okay. comes from the place. Although there have been cases recently um, where I have gone places to research an idea. Yeah. What about the characters? Do they where do they come in? Where do you find that in the story? I'm a compulsive people watcher. <laughs> and I, you know, Amanda will say to me, did you see the dress she had on or the shirt he had on? And I'd say, no, I didn't. But I noticed the emotional interaction between people or among people, depending and um, how just how they act with each other that's fascinating to me it's always been fascinating to me and um so i'd say the characters are maybe a third third observation a third imagination and a third maybe little pieces of me mixed in there depending depending on the character yeah and i can see in your writing where you're having said that emotion, you see the emotions and you see those interactions because you can see that in your writing of the books I've read. I'm more a art writer than a brain writer. I think I'm not, you know, I'm highly educated and I think I write for reasonably intelligent people, but I'm not um, as cerebral as some novelists, I would say. I was drawn to your books um, by Italy because we were living in Sicily at the time. And, and kind of that, it's always fascinated me. I don't know. Have you read the book of joy? No. Okay. It's Actually, the, I have, I have read, I have it in my bookshelf. I have read. Some. Yeah. But just like the, the com- combination of the Eastern and the Western philosophy. And so my first book that I read by you was the breakfast with Buddha series. Cause it kind of tied that in. Um, I loved the delight of being ordinary and just being able to kind of travel through Italy with that. And what a fun story that was. Um, but yeah, so I was drawn to your stories by Italy itself. So the delight of being ordinary was the most fun I had writing a book without, I don't know why it just was fun. I, I did some of the research on the ground there and different trips and, uh, I just liked the characters and so it was fun. Yeah. And it's funny because I picked it up really just having read your other works without reading what it was about. And at first I read a little bit and I'm like, this isn't a true story, right? Like they didn't really escape and go on this excursion. Like I ended up Googling it and I'm like, okay, no, they did not. (laughs) Right. right. But it was really fun. Laugh out loud funny for sure. I'm glad. I'm glad. So, and then do you have a favorite place that you've traveled? Uh, Italy, definitely. Um, I've been all, we've been all over from Sicily and Sardinia to the Dolomites and the Alps and, and everything in between. And, it's hard to say a favorite. I really like Naples. Um, I really like Cagliari, which is the capital of Sardinia. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I've run a writing conference in Orvieto, which I really like. So, you know, I like different places for different reasons. Yeah. But there's just so much there. I feel like I, I have a fantasy of living there. I think we both do now. We have a daughter still in college, and maybe when she's done, we'll go and live there at least part of the year. That would be amazing. <laughs> what a dream to be able to do that, right? To get to travel. You know what it's like. I mean, it's it's nice. It's a nice world. I have to 
put myself back into, okay, no, we live in the United States now. It's like the yearning, right, of our time in Sicily and the culture and the people. And it it really is. It just, it's going to stay in my heart forever, for sure. And I had studied abroad in Rome. And I remember thinking, I did a just a semester there, but I remember thinking after I left there that I'll never have this opportunity again. And just recognizing what an amazing experience that was. And then after my husband joined in the military and we got this offer to go to Sicily, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to happen again. We get, I get to have this. I'm sure it'll happen more times too. It's, you know, it's not heaven. There, It's not paradise. There are problems. But yeah. um, the kindness of the people is really off the charts most of the time. The food is incredibly tasty and healthy. The, the pure beauty of the land and the sea and also the buildings. It just, it's really, I've been around the Northern hemisphere a lot. I've never seen anything like that for a number of incredible art treasures in, in one place. Yeah. I remember calling my parents who had never been to Europe when I was, I had studied abroad being like, I don't even know how to explain this to you because there's nothing in the United States that is even near as old or is even similar that I had, I mean, that I had seen in my life at that point. I, I don't think there is anything, you know, I mean, my wife grew up in a house that was built in like 1670 or something. And that's not really that old by, by Italian standards. No. You know, you can go into a thousand year old church in general, which we did on this trip. I walked in, I said, how old is this church? She said, well, the original church was here a thousand years ago. I was like, okay. Yeah. And if you are standing in that church, you just have that moment of thinking that, like, I am standing in something that is so incredibly old. It, it really makes you thunderstruck a little bit. Like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And the beauty of that. Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. How long does it take you? I, I tend to write very, very fast. Partly because I get a little nervous when I'm in the composing stage. I, I want to finish. And so I really, I can write 20 pages a day. I could write wow. 20 pages a day longhand sometimes. But um, so I often write a book in a month or two months, sometimes three months. And then I spend a lot of time going over it. I'm really, I'm a Virgo and I'm compulsive and I just go over and over and over and always with a pen. I print it out and I have a manuscript I'm working on now. I print it out and I mark it with a pen and then I type the changes in and then I make some changes online and then I sometimes print it out again. It's um, painstaking, but that's, yeah. it's also a good way not to get writer's block if you just pour this stuff out and say, I'll fix it later, yeah. you don't get stuck, or it's more difficult to get stuck. That makes sense. I had spoken to a guest a few weeks ago, and she was saying just a lot of people get stuck on trying to create that perfect sentence. Yeah. And she's like, it's better just to get the idea there, and then you can go back and perfect it after. Yeah, I have a friend, I won't mention his name, he's quite famous, and he he takes between five and 10 years to write a book and he, he won't put the sentence on the page unless or on the screen, unless he feels it's perfect. Yeah. And he, the product is great. First of all, I, I supported my family by writing. I would have not been able to do that and wait yeah. 10 years between books. <laughs> um, and I feel like it's risky. Like you can, you know, the doubts, you have, the doubts have more opportunity to creep in. Sure. And um, I just go. And sometimes I don't look back. I just go forward. I, I just write the whole thing, and then I go back and look. Do you write it on the computer then, it sounds like, or do you do longhand? I do now. I did longhand for the first 10 or 12 or 15 books probably, and then typed it with a typewriter at first and then on the computer. The The computer is so much faster that it's, it's difficult to make yeah. myself but handwriting has some big advantages, you know, I mean, as you're writing, you're editing, at least I am, you know, where the next word is, where the story will go, you're moving more slowly. And I like the tactile connection, sure, which I don't get from tapping keys on a, on a keyboard. Yeah. And having not, not been a writer myself, but 
even in school, I feel for these kids now that everything's on these PowerPoints and on the computer. I always did such a better job of studying when I could get into the notes and write on them and kind of mess them all up and make it my own. There's a fundamental difference in uh, the brain, I think, when you're writing by hand and when you're writing on a computer. The, the electricity, something happens, at least for me, I, I really would prefer to write by hand, and sometimes I do if I have a chapter I want to write that um, needs a little more thought. But it's just so convenient. You can move things around. You can erase and, and add so easily that it's, um, it's hard for me to make myself write by hand now. Yeah. So do you go to the places? Are you writing when you're in the place or do you come home and then kind of synthesize all the material to create? It's sometimes like the Buddha books were actual road trips and, okay. and the, the actual every those books could be used as guides or roadmaps. I mean, they're absolutely accurate to the roads, what I saw, what I ate, everything. So I would take notes during those. Um and sometimes I would write it a little bit at night just to get a, if I'm imagining a, a conversation, I would work, you know, write a page or two of it at night just to get a, a start on it. Um, but a lot of times it's after I've been someplace. I didn't write the Russian book in Russia. I didn't write the Micronesia book in Micronesia. A lot of time I didn't write the Revere books when I lived in Revere. A lot of times, and I think, this is true for most writers. You have to have a little distance. Yeah. You know, James Joyce didn't write about Ireland when he lived in Ireland. Yeah. As far as I understand. So. Yeah, I imagine you have to have some time to kind of break it down in your head a little bit too and yeah. think about it. One of the books we're going to discuss, um, Christ Stopped at Eboli, is a good example because uh, Levy lived in southern Italy for a year and didn't write... He may have taken notes, but he didn't publish the book until quite a bit later. Okay. When he lived in a very different uh, Italy. Yeah. Yeah, and you can go back and think about it. And like I do, I dream of Sicily. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because we had all our first duty station. We lived in Hawaii, which we felt like we had won the lottery that these two Chicago kids got to go in the Navy. First duty station was Hawaii. It was the best thing ever. But I dreamed about that forever. And then eight years later, we ended up in Sicily, which kind of stopped my Hawaii dreams a little bit. I still think about it, but I'm like, will I ever stop thinking of Hawaii day by day? And now it competes with Sicily. So it's Catania like in the wintertime. It's pretty mild. There is a rainy season, though, um, and it can be very wet. Where's the base in relation to the center of the city? So it's about 25 minutes west. Exactly west, west yeah. yeah okay. Okay. Um, and it was... What I, I really liked that because we were out in the middle of farmland, so it was beautiful, and we had this stunning view of Etna because there's nothing, there was no towns in the way, no buildings obstructing our view. Wow. But drivers in Italy are a little crazy. <laughs> if you have never been to Italy, they will make the sidewalk their roadway. They will make two or three lanes out of two. They go everywhere and anywhere. Yep. And so I could drive in this little farm town, and it was very calm. And then, I, but if I wanted to, and I could psych myself up, I could drive into Catania and into the chaos. <laughs> so, and even the finding the parking right of, and navigating, my Italian was spotty at first. We did take a year of lessons, but when I first got there, um, you know, how, how am I going to navigate? This time around, compared to when I lived in Rome, though, we did have smartphones. So I did have Google Maps, which was huge because I did not have that when I studied abroad and I remember getting so lost. <laughs> I've driven tens of thousands of miles all over Italy and in the early days I'd have to ask directions and my Italian was fine for asking but not always fine for understanding when people yes. said you know after the fire hydrant take a right well I didn't know the word for fire hydrant <laughs> still don't so you know I would get we would get lost constantly but now we have the phone and it's a lot but the driving is crazy I mean Absolutely. I kind of like it once I get into it, but it's it's nuts. I mean, I think yeah. they're very good drivers, but Agreed. they do not obey the rules at all. No. No rule. Sicily's kind of the wild west of Italy, I always said. Like it was even it was got crazier and crazier as you went further south. <laughs> really? It's kind of funny to me because where I grew up was an Italian American community and okay. there was similar attitudes. Like the people were you know, the rules don't apply to me. 
Those are yeah. the rules. I don't care about that. I'll pack where <laughs> I want to pack. Who's going to tell me where I should pack? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And then when I got to Italy, I said, oh, this is where that attitude comes from. <laughs> now <Right>. I understand. <laughs> yeah, each place we've lived, it's been, uh, everybody's given us tips on the driving. And I remember moving to Hawaii. People were like, don't honk at anybody. They will follow you home. <laughs> <laughs> and being from Chicago, I mean, the horn's not a bad thing. <laughs> so I was like, really like, okay, I won't do anything. I don't want to be followed home. But yeah, they they really find honking of the horn offensive. Really? That's good yeah. to know. That's good advice. I've really loved the travel. And it sounds like similar to you of just getting to see different ways of life and different cultures and different people. And, yeah. um, and you pick a little bit up of it up along the way. The best education. Let's talk a little bit about your reading life. What type of books do you prefer to read? It's changed, Kara. Uh, when I was first trying to write my first novel, I would read voraciously and always novels, and I would okay. take recommendations from different people. And I would really study the books that I read. I remember especially uh, James Jones is from Here to Eternity, Robert Stone, The Flag for Sunrise. Um, I had read the Russian novels, the 19th century Russian novels, very closely in college and grad school. Those can be some intimidating books. <laughs> Those big, thick tomes, yeah. Yeah, they can be. Oh, they can be, yeah. Especially if you don't know the language or the culture. Um, and then... Lately, it's you know that was I published my first book thirty two years ago, so a lot has changed in that time. And I really now don't read as much. I read in Italian. I try to to improve my uh, my language, and I tend to read books over and over for that reason. And I also I I have a little. I'm sorry to say. It's hard for me to find a modern novel that really captivates me. And um, I don't want this to sound uh, immodest. I don't mean it that way. But if you're, a, if you're a cook and you go to a restaurant, you experience it differently than a person who's not a cook, not a chef. Really. Yeah. And so if you're a writer, you, you experience reading differently, I feel. And I can be more critical. I know the tricks. I know where things are going to go sometimes. I've seen a lot of the same thing. I've probably written a lot of the same thing. So it's much more difficult for me now to find a novel that I absolutely love. So I tend to go back and read novels that I absolutely loved. Um, and there's a few classics that I, a bunch of classics that I haven't read that I would, Don Quixote, for example, I would like to read. Um, but I probably read as much in Italian as I read in English. That's great. That's something I have never thought of from the author's perspective of now the challenge of finding a book that you enjoy. I've I've yeah. never thought about that. And I'm sure there's a lot of contemporary novels out there, but I just, I don't, I'm not drawn to try to find them as much. Um, there's some that I've read, you know, Recent novels that I really like, uh, Hotel du Lac, I really like. That's not an old book. Okay. Um, the Appointment, uh, Goethe Muller, who won the Nobel Prize. I read before she won the prize. I thought that was a great book. Yeah. Um, but I do love the older novels. They're slower, and I read slowly, and um, I don't know. I, you know, I can get a lot of modern life from the news and just from being alive, but sure. I like to read stuff from a generation ago, two generations ago. Okay. When you're writing or you're in the midst of your writing, can you also read at the same time? That's part of the issue is that I don't like to because I'm afraid that I'll take something inadvertently from someone else. Sure. Um, and I don't, it's like I don't read criticism. I don't read the New York Times book review. I don't want to have that in my head. I just yeah. want to write the story that I want to write in the way I want to write it. And um, I think if I had been that way from the beginning, that would have been a problem. I mean, that's kind of immodest to say, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I don't care what anybody else ever did. But I started out, you know, for 30 years reading what other people did. So yeah. it's... Um, and it takes you a while to find your own voice and your own storytelling style. And even that evolved. So 
I really make an effort not to be influenced by um, by anything right now. Yeah, I could see where that would almost be like noise interference while you're trying to write. And and even like you said, listening to the critiques and the reviews, how that might, you know, you just want to, your story to be pure yeah. <laughs> and not have the influence of that. So I think at a certain point, I wouldn't say that to a person starting out writing novels. I would say, you know, read as much as you can. I saw uh, Dana Bash interview Barry Manilow. Okay on TV about three or four months ago, six months ago. It was really a great interview. And I'm not a huge fan of his music, but he's a nice man. And she said, you know, what do you listen to? What kind of music do you listen to? And he said, I don't. Wow. For the same reasons. And I felt a kinship because it was obviously he has listened to music his whole life and studied music his whole life and studied the work of other musicians his whole life. But he, he's, be, I don't want to say beyond that, that sounds conceited, but he's in a different place now. You know, yeah. he's, it's like, um, I think there are different stages in any artist's life. And, you know, you wouldn't, not to compare myself to Monet, but you wouldn't say to Monet, you know, what paintings are you looking at? He'd be out there painting. He might be aware yeah. of what else is going on, but if he had been looking at other people's work, he never would have developed his own the way he did. And I think that's a natural stage of any kind of art at all. You get into the place where I know that I know my trade, I know my craft, and I know what I want to say. I know what has been said, and I just want to write what I want to write. Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I consider the marketplace. I don't, I don't, I don't want to write a 5,000 page book about, you know, my eyelashes that nobody else in the world would yeah. read. You know? <laughs> but it's not like I don't imagine a reader, but I do try to go into myself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that. Cause that, I, that's the side of it I had never considered. Well, why don't we start diving into your book flight today? Yeah, I have my books right here. Okay, so what is the first book of our pairing today? Whatever you want it to be. Well, let's go with Miss Dalloway. Rereading actually, um, and I love Virginia Woolf. I love uh, her her incredible, amazing ability with language. I don't think there's any writer I've ever read who comes close to her for that. But it's more than that for me. I feel like. Uh, and it's also wh why I put these three books together is that I've, I've always felt that she had a mystical sensibility and saw life, but, but also saw the mystery behind the most ordinary things. So she has an essay called Street Haunting in London, where she goes out to buy a pencil. That's the, that's the theme of the essay. Okay. And she just walks out to buy the pencil and writes about what she sees. It's not nonfiction. And it's it's an incredible appreciation for life. You want me to, can I read one little paragraph? Yeah, that would be great. I think this is an example of what I'm, I'm talking about. It's on page 169, 179. She says, beauty anyhow. Not the crude beauty of the eye. It was not beauty pure and simple, Bedford Place leading into Russell Square. It was straightness and emptiness, of course, the symmetry of a corridor, but it was also windows lit up, a piano, a gramophone sounding, a sense of pleasure making hidden, but now and again emerging when through the uncurtained window, the window left open. One saw parties sitting over tables, young people slowly circling, conversations between men and women, maids idly looking out, stockings drying on top ledges, a parrot, a few plants, absorbing, mysterious, of infinite richness, this life. Wow. That's what I love about her is, you know, laundry hanging. That was there's something behind laundry hanging. It's obviously this laundry hanging, you know, it's yeah. a gramophone playing, but she was operating from another dimension. And um, I, I, 
I would venture to say I think that was part of her mental difficulty too, because if you operate and she and Hemingway both committed suicide, and if you operate in that dimension, ordinary life is difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And I as you were reading that, it was painting the picture before my eyes as yeah. you were reading that. Yeah. Beautiful prose and her ability to get into the psychology of people, men, women, old, young, it's just incredible. Yeah. I was really actually glad you had this book in your flight because I've been challenging myself to do a century of books challenge. So I chose a book from each year for the past 100 years. And this is the book that I had chosen. I don't remember what year it's written, but it's on my spreadsheet of books. So 1925. Okay. Yep. So it's my, it's, I have not picked it up yet, but it is, I was like, this will be my nudge to read it after we talk about it today. It, not a lot happens in her books. If you're, you know, if a reader is someone who wants action on every page, she's not a good author for that. But the, uh, the depth of it and the beauty of it is enough for me. Yeah. And I could see where, like you said, I'll, I'll read this one slowly and really savor it a little bit. And that yeah. is where the enjoyment will come. Yeah. Wonderful. Do you have anything else you want to add about that one? Just some lines will just sent me back. I mean, I'll read the lines and stop, you know, the, the ending of her, another of her novels to the lighthouse has a woman. It's set. If you don't know, you may know it's set at a summer house. And uh, Mrs. Ramsey has all these different kinds of guests. And one of the guests is a young woman who likes to paint and is not very talented. But the end of the book is she finishes the painting and she says, and now I have had my vision. It's just so perfect. Wow. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not now I've created a great work of art. She knows it's not a great work of art, but yeah. she has had her vision. And that's, it speaks to the whole book. I think it speaks to Virginia Woolf's life and to the work of a lot of writers. To see the extraordinary in the ordinary is an incredible gift, I think. And I think I would even say it's part of what artists um, contribute to life. Yeah. Very practical minded people say, oh, you know, Cezanne just painted pictures. What good is that? I think he was trying to say, pay attention. Don't just blunder through. You're on a planet whirling in space. You have this body in which all kinds of systems have to work perfectly for you to stay alive. Stop a minute, look, listen, feel, pay attention. Yeah. And I think all, you know, dancers, sculptors, musicians, writers, all, that's what they offer. That's their contribution to human life. And it, it shouldn't be diminished. It shouldn't be dismissed. Yeah. I'm thinking a phrase is coming to mind of like, they're coloring the world for us through their art. Mm -hmm. And it, it made me think of something else, too. And I don't know if you experienced this when you travel, but that was the other thing I think Cicely did for our family is we left and it took away all almost like we didn't have, I mean, quote unquote, extracurriculars, but life became very simple in Sicily. My husband had shorter hours at work. I, I stopped working at that point. That's when I became a stay at home mom was for those few years yeah. and just to just be with my kids and yeah. be in Sicily. Yeah. That was my job. And it allowed this to see so much more, I think, and opened my eyes to so many other things where if I'm so busy, it's like I have to kind of smudge those things out to be able to accomplish, quote unquote, my to do list. 100% agree. And I think that's Italian, uh, Italy's gift to the world. And it's why so many people go there and have gone the Russian Jews to go there for the cure, they said. Of the cure. Okay. The Brits all went there for the same reason. Some of that was sunshine and food, but some of them was some of it was a way of being that puts at the top of the list family, food, beauty, relationships, and yeah. work, money, things farther down the list. I like that. I like that hierarchy. Yeah. The closing of the shops for the Reposo, right? They close from one to four. Three, for three hours. I would, you know, <laughs> go, I'm going to go to the phone store. Oh, the phone store is not open. I'm going to go to the, 
whatever. Oh, it's not open. And I finally got used to not doing anything except eating between those hours. Yeah. And I always thought, I kept thinking to myself, like, I would have a really hard time going back to work at 4 p.m. Like, after I had a three-hour break, I would struggle to rally myself to return. Yeah, especially if you had a big lunch with wine, which they do, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then they work until 7, 6, 7 o'clock at night, have, yeah. have the aperitivo, and then talk to their friends for a while and eat dinner at 9.30, you know. Yeah. When we had little kids there, we'd, they'd get hungry at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and we'd go to the restaurant and say, well... It's not open. We don't eat till come back at eight, maybe, you know. Yeah. And my kids would be melting down by 8 p.m. So we didn't eat out for dinner much when we lived there, except when we had a sitter. That is right. We, we were traveling, so we couldn't always cook, but um, they would get fussy. They were hungry, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny, you know. Yeah. And you'd see Italian kids up 1130 at night. They're out there with their family eating. You know, it's like, don't you have school the next day? You know? I was always so impressed with them, though, because the kids wouldn't be melting down at the table. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, I don't know that my children could ever do that. <laughs> my daughter went to school uh, her uh, sophomore year in high school for half a year in Rimini. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. She came back with some great stories about the differences. Yeah. yeah. And like you said, it changes us. It sculpts us to be who we are as people. But connected to what we were saying, I think it's very true that travel also awakens your senses you know yes you can like i see the same beautiful landscape every single day and that and it's i have to make myself pay attention to it it's so easy to take it for granted mm -hmm. well, if you're traveling and you see something new it wakes you up and um and that you know what you eat what the language is what you see and what you hear what you smell it really wakes you up, and I love that part of travel. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go into our second book of the book flight today. Okay. You want to do The Sun Also Rises? Yeah, that seems we should go there. Uh, set in Spain. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd i say the same thing I said about Mrs. Dalloway. And I, I used to teach in college, and people were aghast when I compared Hemingway and Virginia Woolf because it's just not politically the thing to do. <laughs> but I, I think there's a real similarity that Hemingway also, you know, he could describe um, a plate of eggs and putting pepper on a couple of eggs and eating them or having a glass of wine or a landscape or a bullfight or fishing in a way that was the opposite of taking it for granted. I think there was a mystical sensibility in him also that he he had, although he expressed it very differently than she did, he had that same sense of a mystery lying behind the ordinary surfaces yeah. of things. And also very good um, about going into the deeper paths of human psychology. Yeah. And also, and you know, stuff happened, more happens in The Sun Also Rises than in Mrs. Dalloway, but that's okay. not saying much. I mean, not a lot happens. You know, they go out and talk, they have a drink, there's a bullfight, there's a love uh, triangle, there's, um, but a lot of it is, is pretty much ordinary life and mm -hmm. ordinary, Ordinary days, you know, we're going to take a trip to Spain. We're going to go to the Fiesta. Okay, uh, that's a little bit unusual, but much of the book is really what I think of as ordinary. And the beauty of it is that he's able to imbue that with that sense of the mystical. Yeah. And I'm thinking for us as the reader, or for me as the reader, you're as the writer, but for us as the reader, the ordinary helps us connect to the story as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can read it on those levels. You know, I mean, you don't have to read much into it. You can just take it as a a guy who's in love with somebody and can't can't um, make love with her. And that's just a, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting story. But um, there's just a lot more going on there than that. Yeah. And I do love reading that in the ordinary saying that Oh, I'm not alone <laughs> in who I am as a person, right? Of so right. I, I enjoy reading from that aspect of oh no, there's others that like that out there. 
Yeah, if the if the characters are really exceptional in some way, it's harder to relate to them. Although, when I teach writing, which I don't do anymore, except the occasional workshop that I run, I always say that there's a lot of emphasis these days on what I think of as important but more superficial characteristics like your gender, your race, your age, your nationality, your ethnicity, your class. Mm -hmm. Those things matter for sure. Sure. But really, someone like me, I, I have I have, a, I have a friend who's a lesbian, gay woman, and she got very mad at me when I said this, but I think it's true. I have more in common with a black lesbian than different. We, we have more in common yeah. than we have differences. We have two, even physically, even physiologically, a man and a woman have more in common than they have different. That's obviously true. You know, two eyes, two lungs, and so on and so forth. Sure, there are differences. But in terms of the emotional realm, yeah, we, we're really all in the same boat all over the world, no matter our nationality, race, age, gender, sexual preference. We want to be loved. We feel love, we feel fear, we worry, we age, we have illness, we have great pleasures. You know, everybody has those things. And those are the, the fundamentals of humanity. And I think I try to, and I think many writers go to that level. And you can, it bothers me that, you know, people say, oh, he's a male writer. I don't think I'd be interested if she's a woman reader or vice versa, like men would say, oh, Virginia Woolf, she's written for women. I don't feel that way. I feel like they're writing about humanity mm -hmm. from different perspectives, sure. But they're writing about love and worry and fear and death and, you know, all the big things that um, Paul Story wrote about in Anna Karenina, for example. Yeah. And so I love that about Hemingway and Wolf that they can really go down. I think of it as going down into the the deeper places. And it doesn't mean the book has to be heavy and, you know, ponderous and hard to read. But there's a certain something in them when they produce the story that to me comes out on the page. Yeah, it's interesting as our, I think as our society, right, as these labels play, quote unquote, such a huge role, like you're saying, but it is a very superficial view of who we are as a person. And I remember when I went to the stay at home mom status, when yeah. we moved to Sicily, I was a physical therapist before that. I didn't leave my job because I didn't like it, but we moved to overseas and I didn't speak Italian language to be able to work. And I remember thinking, we're taught to like have this elevator speech of who we are, right? And it usually is that superficial label. Yeah. And I'm like, well, who do I say that I am? Yeah. Now that I'm not a physical therapist, quote unquote, and having, it took me quite a few years actually to figure out, well, that's not really who I am. Like, yes, that's my job, but I'm so much more than that. Yeah. And I'm so much more because I remember being scared of the stay at home mom title because I thought that it was looked down upon. Yeah. by our society and being like, well, I don't really want to say that I'm that kind of shying away from it. But I'm like, I'm so much more than just that. And, and it's just that is a lot. You know, that's a big deal. And my yeah. wife stopped working. She worked from the time she was 14 until she was 41 when we had our first child. Okay. She worked all the time. And then when, when she had her first child, she didn't want to go back to work and it was a strain for us financially but i was all for it like i don't go back to work she's yeah. a museum photographer you know and oh, okay. she loved being a stay-at-home mother loved it the kids liked it so much that they both girls they both want to be a stay-at-home mom yeah and, but she did get some a little bit snooty comments from some women you know that it was somehow less yeah. to not go to the office every day. And um, that's unfortunate. That's the unfortunate side of the, 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 the positive part of women being able to do everything they want to do, which they couldn't do a couple of generations ago. Yeah. But if what they want to do is stay home and raise their children, I mean, that's a fairly yeah. important 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like you do you and I'll do me. But I think that's why I like reading and reading into the ordinary of the life of, of daily life, right? Is that we are so much more than just the labels. Yeah, no, we really are. And um, I, I often think we're, we're all in disguise in a certain way. You know, we're playing a particular role and we have to play that role as well as we can. That's That's the role we've been given. But beneath that role is the really important stuff, you know. Yeah. Beneath, like my my father's mother was a stay-at-home Italian peasant woman with eight children. Wow! You could make the very big mistake of dismissing her because she was not educated. She spoke English with an accent. She traveled only from her little village to Boston, and that was it. But the depth of her was incredible. If you got to know her. Yeah, there was a lot going on there, and uh, it taught me, I think, not to not to judge people by what I could see. Absolutely, my dad taught me the same lessons. I've never judged the book by its cover, That's and you never know lesson. what's happening in their world either. So no, that's a great lesson. Yeah, have you been to the village where your grandmother is from? Twice. Okay. Yeah. Two or three times actually, and twice in my grandfather's village. It was extremely moving experience for me I lived, with, I lived I lived upstairs from them I lived in the same house and then next door to them until they died and um, to go to the places where she went to church you know to see people with the same last name which is an unusual last name my grandfather's and um, see people who looked and even gestured like my relatives, you know, see yeah. faces I grew up with. That was very important for me. That had to be such an incredible upbringing, having your grandparents so close like that. Yeah, really. My other my other grandparents were a fifteen minute walk away. I saw them a lot. They were English immigrants and um, working class. He was a factory worker, and very nice people. And she was really a big influence on me because she could. I recite poetry from memory at great length wow. in a kind of um, British accent, which is beautiful. Um, but they weren't as big an influence on me. I mean, you know, the Italian family was all hugs and kisses and food, and I and they were they were nice, but they were reserved and quiet. And for a kid, you know, if you walk into a kitchen and you hey, there you are, come over here, give me a big kiss, sit down. Are you hungry? Have this. Or what are you doing? You know, it's different than if they say, oh, hi, how are you? Give me, a, you know, I'll have a little kiss. And would you like a cup of tea? It's different for a kid. It's not worse. It just doesn't doesn't strike the heart the same yeah. way. I'm giggling inside because my husband's family is Cuban. So I can picture the exact same situation you're describing. They all lived within walking distance growing up and I remember being really flustered like which cheek do I kiss when I come say hello because my family was so different <laughs> and it, just the noise level in the house the noise, <laughs> level, the noise level is a whole other thing I said a book in Cuba before I went and then I went um it was amazing an amazing place they were trying to take, when the embargo opened up, they were trying to take his grandfather back. But he's like, they had a lot of difficulty obtaining the visas to do so. And at a certain point, his grandfather was like, I don't know if I want to see it. He's like, it's not going to be the same Cuba I knew. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union, a lot of time, 28 months, and between 1977 and 1990. And um, what a terrible system. I mean, I'm... I'm you know, politically, maybe in my early days, I thought that, you know, I never thought communism was a great thing because we were brought up with the, the fear of nuclear war. But sure, it seemed like, you know, if you have extra, give it to the people who don't have extra, which I think is good. But the way it manifests itself in human oh, society yeah. is just so horrible, just so horrible. That uh, the suffering and the, the terror and the inability to say what you want to say the cubans can't leave they can't yeah. you know it's just wrong it's just really terrible yeah and it's ravaged their families right and yeah. people fleeing had a terrible dictator and if you had money you had a really nice life but um now it's just 
just bare living, you know. And it's sad because it's a very rich island. Yeah, it could be. It's exactly. Rich in resources and but it just looks like the poorest place. It's incredible. Yeah. Is there does be having been there? Does their like culture and their spirit still thrive though within yes. that? Yes, definitely, absolutely. I mean, and there's some advantages. They have you know very little crime, very little drugs, no guns. You know that those are good things, and they yeah. make for a better community. Um. But it's everything is way. If if you're an ambitious, hardworking person, there's like a ceiling, very low ceiling over your head. You know, yeah. you just cannot. There's no incentive to better yourself and work harder, and so which was exactly the same in the Soviet Union, and so that affects everybody. You yeah. know, if you're a a bricklayer and you really don't care what kind of work you do because you're going to get the same amount of money no matter what you do. The houses aren't going to be built very well you know that's just it, it resonates throughout the society and it's um it was beautiful and sad that experience yeah yeah i imagine it crushes that ability to flourish as a person right because it just weighs on you after a while unless you do it in secret you know unless you have your or you know you have your little music group or you have you write books that nobody's ever going to be able to read you know for your own satisfaction, but writing is about one's own satisfaction, but it's also about contributing to the reader. That's the tragic part of Cuba. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing about that. I really appreciate that insight. All right, let's go to our third book of the pairing today. Which is different in that it's, um, I recommend this book to people, but they hear Christ in the, in the, in the title and they think it's a religious book, which it absolutely is not. And some okay. people want to read that. It has nothing to do with Christ, actually. The the title comes from the idea that this, the author, uh, Carlo Levi was um, exiled by Mussolini to the poorest part of Basilicata okay. as punishment for his political views and he was made to spend a year in exile in this incredibly backward war. And he was a Jewish intellectual painter and actually a doctor, a medical doctor. Wow. So for him, I don't know what the equivalent would be in the United States, but taking some highly educated person out of Manhattan and making them live in some little, tiny, dusty little town someplace in... I don't want to offend, you know, Western Oklahoma or something. It's, it's a big transition. And yeah. uh, that was what the case was for him. And he lived there for a year. And this is different from the other two books because it's nonfiction. I was asked, is it a memoir then? Yeah. Okay. but the, It's a memoir. But the title comes from the fact that the people that he writes about, the peasants, didn't feel that they were people. They were wow. some other species and they weren't even Christians and Christians were people. That was the equivalent. If you were a Christian, you were a human being. Okay. And Christ, Christianity came from Rome south and stopped at Eboli, which is north of where they were. So it never reached them. They, the liberating influence of real Christianity never got to them. Wow. So that's where the title comes from. Christ stopped at every it has nothing to do with Christ at all. It's sure. them feeling like like civilization stopped at greater, you know, ten miles west of Boston and it never got here. So I'm really not a full human being. That's wow. what it's about. And he just describes their lives with incredible empathy and beauty. And then what does link it to the other two books in my mind is that it has that mystical element that can see something beyond the ordinary life and in this case the ordinary life is grim i mean yeah unbelievable poverty peasants going off to work you know from dawn to dusk in the field and having nothing wow what time period is this then in uh, 1930s okay before the war. Wow. i think maybe in the late 20s or 
thirties. I'm not sure the exact. Let me see. Okay. I'm so intrigued. I had, I had no idea. And this is why I love another reason why I love reading is just learning about this. And yes, same with me. It was published in 1945, but I'm okay. sure it was in the thirties. It was before sure. the war. I think it was thirties. Um, but you also get a sense of living in a dictatorship where he couldn't travel. He couldn't say certain things. People couldn't say things to him except in private. Yeah. Uh, it's just so beautifully written. Even in English, it's a beautiful translation. And I try, I read it also in Italian. And um, I guess sense, his sensibility is the word I'm looking for. And the sensibility of Hemingway and Wolf in that they look at the world in a certain way that I find magnificent. And they're able to put that sensibility onto the page for the reader. Yeah. And shine a light on that is kind of what I'm picturing as you're saying that. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wow. I'm like I said, I'm very intrigued. I had no idea about this, this area of it. I mean, I knew I've heard of Basilicata. It's, it's towards the heel of the boot, correct? Yeah, <laughs> middle, middle south, way, okay. way down the middle. Yeah. Right. Okay. Calabria, Calabria is the toe and Puglia is the heel yeah. and it's in between. It has no coastline and it's mountainous and um, still very poor. Yeah. His humility makes the book beautiful. Do you know the book, um, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men? No. It's very similar to this. James Agee was an Eastern intellectual Okay. He went to Exeter Academy, which I also did. He went to Harvard, which I did not. Okay. <laughs> uh, during the Depression, you know how they gave, made work for people. If you were a bricklayer, you, you the WPA project would give you work so you could make money. The government create, and the government did that for artists also. And they sent him and a famous photographer, Walker, Walker Evans, to live with the poorest white sharecroppers in Alabama Wow! during the depression I mean, people who had no shoes, yeah. who had next to no food, who worked the land that they didn't own and, and made nothing from it. And it's the same, very similar to Christ stopped at Eberly because you have this highly educated person who's coming to live with these people and is treating them with absolute respect. Yeah. And incredible humility and not a whisper of I'm above these people because I'm educated and I'm worldly and so on. And it's, it's a difficult read. Uh, let us now praise famous men. Christ sure. Doctor, I believe, is not a difficult read. Okay. But it it shares that incredible gift. It's really love, I think. It's a, a, a humility and empathy that translates into love for people whose lives are just bitter. Yeah. And that's, I'm thinking almost with a sadness, right? Of I, I can't imagine not thinking of myself as human, right? Yeah. And what their mindset and is, um, is there any transformation of the people through these stories? None. None. Only through his empathy for them. He, he sees them as human. Yeah. Of, you know, he really does, and he respects them. He even admires them, and he really doesn't want to hang around with, like, the mayor and the big shots in the town who think they're better than tr and treat the peasants poorly. He has nothing good to say about them at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he makes them beautiful, and, and I don't want to romanticize their lives because they were harsh, really harsh lives, but he... He's able to portray the beauty in those lives. And I think, I'm pretty sure when he died, he asked for his ashes to be buried there, wow. even though he was from, I think he was from Torino, you know, up north and okay. lived a very different life. Um, but I'm pretty sure he's buried in, in um, the little village he writes about, which he changed the name of. Okay. Yeah, we all have so much to learn from one another, no matter... Yeah. If yeah. you're this peasant in this village or, you know, the photographer that went to Alabama, we all could learn from one another. Someday take a look at Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. It's difficult. Okay. Experimental. It usually comes in a book with the photographs. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a, it's a magnificent piece of work.
Okay, I'll pick that one up as a hard copy then. I, I do my fair share of audiobooks just with the busyness yeah. of life with the, the kids and the tasks to be done. But the house once they go to bed, it's audiobook time for the household chores. I prefer reading a hardcover book, but um, I'm glad audiobooks exist. Most of my books have been made into audiobooks. And it's hard for the writer because you hear someone else saying words that came from your mind. And it, <laughs> no matter how good a job they do, it's never going to match the way yeah. it sounds in your mind. Yeah, actually, I had a question about that. When you were talking about your English grandmother reciting poetry, if you read poetry now, do you hear it in her voice? Even prose, I hear her voice. Yeah. Even when I when I read, even when I write, sometimes I hear her voice. My mother had the same kind of cadence, and my I noticed my older daughter has it also in her writing. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's a little on the formal side, not not too precious, but um, has a certain lilt to it that I um, I think comes from. She was crippled. She had rheumatoid arthritis and was in a wheelchair most of the time. I knew okay. her. But she had this incredible memory and could um, just recite these really long poems. Yeah, it's amazing that our brains store that, right? We can, as you're you're hearing that in your prose or reading poetry yourself, you're still hearing that years later. It's amazing incredible. that the brain imprints that. I even see. Um, I have a lot of Italian American friends and relatives also, and I play golf, and sometimes. Like one of my friends said, um, it's not even the whole. And no American would say that. An American yeah. would say the whole is not even. It's not cut even, evenly. And Italians would say la buca. They would, they would put the, the noun at the end like that. It's not, and he's an American. He grew up in America. But that's sure. been passed on to him from his, his parents and grandparents. Yeah. Well, let's finish off today with our bonus pairings, which are just a speed round of questions. So you can just answer them really quick. Okay. What is one book that you have read that has changed your life? Um, Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky changed my life. Okay. A very simple, short book about a troubled young guy who's most of the book is his interior world. And at the time I read it, it was... Um, as you said earlier, that, oh, there are other people like me. You know, there are other yeah. people thinking the kinds of things that I'm thinking. Oh, I love that. And then lastly, what are you reading next? I think I might reread The Leopard. Have you ever read The Leopard? It's a, it's a set in Sicily, actually. In, oh. Right in the middle 1800s when Italy was being unified. Okay. Um, and I, I loved it so much. I've read some of it in Italian, but I think I might reread it. In, it. One of these books that the author died before it was ever published. Okay. Sad story, but it's really a good book. Yeah. So did someone ghostwrite to finish it or did it just no, stop? He had, he had finished it, but no, oh, one would, okay. no, no one would publish it. I see. Okay. And I think his mother or his cousin or his grand somebody brought it to the attention of a publisher and they published it and became an international bestseller. Wow. Uh, the Leopard. At, uh, Giuseppe di Lampedusa. Okay. In Italian, it's Il Gatto Pardo. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't think it's for everybody, but that's the kind of thing I like. Yeah. I've read some other books about Sicilian and I actually, it reminds me of some Russian literature too. It's like there's this certain level of somberness and sorrow to the writing do you feel that as well yes, definitely irish writing same thing yeah irish people my irish friends talk about that all the time you know that they just there's a i think it's an understanding that you'll die one day which a lot of us block out you know yeah they don't want to block it out and it's it's kind of important not to block that out so yeah inevitably life will go on just I was just driving back from the park this morning with my daughter and she's like mommy I don't want you to die yeah. and, I'm like, and she's four and I'm like well do I just be honest and like life happens or do we just kind of gloss over it because you're four <laughs> that's a tough one with um that's a tough one for parents to know when when the time is to tell the truth you know yeah yeah, but it was, I took it as a sweet note of, I love you too, Gabriella. <laughs> it is incredible. Yeah, that's yeah. a beautiful name too. No, it's a wonderful thing for kids to say. And it's, 
their awakening to the realities of life. It's a beautiful thing. Well, I thank you so much for your time today. I know it's precious and I really appreciate you being here with me today. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for listening to Roland and I and our discussion today on his book flight of books with a powerful sense of place. We'd love to hear what other books you would pair with this book flight at bookishflights.com. That is also where you can find more information on today's flight and any other books that we talked about today. I want to inspire a community of readers. So whenever you share a post about what you are reading or what you are picking up next, especially if you have heard about the book on the show, please tag us. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Bookish Flights. This is a brand new show, so if you enjoyed it, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the show a review. Your review not only helps me, but it also helps the show reach others. Make sure you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to make sure that you will not miss an episode. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. As Emma Thompson said, I think books are like people in the sense that they'll turn up in your life when you most need them. Cheers to you, dear readers. Until next time.